0: to wake up with Nubian Tigers talk. Nubian Tigers are a group of people who met at Princeton University and have continued to be friends throughout the decades. The COVID-19 pandemic and the civil demonstrations following the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd by the police motivated us to harness our life experiences and professional expertise and contribute our voices to the broader discussion of the conditions of life throughout Black America. My name is Michelle Jacobs, and I'm with my co-host, Ray Smaltz. Before we get to today's guest, I'll turn it over to Ray.
1: Thanks, Michelle. And for those of you listening for the first time, the acronym WAKE, or W-A-K-E, stands for Wisdom, Advice, Knowledge, and Engagement. And the UP is the abbreviation for Princeton University, but only backwards. When the late civil rights icon and longtime Congressman John Lewis was only 23 years old, He delivered an inspiring speech at the historic March on Washington in 1963 and punctuated the end of it with, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop and we will not and cannot be patient. This podcast aspires to wake up our listeners to some of the very same struggles within America today and across the globe. And Michelle, having just completed our election special series, one of the most important issues on the ballot this fall will be the Trump administration's management or mismanagement of the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic. As of this recording, America has upwards of 9 million citizens infected with the virus, while over 230,000 have lost their lives. Of that total, according to the COVID-19 Tracking Project, over 40,000 Black people have died, which is about one in every 1,000, or twice the rate, of white Americans.
0: Right, so Ray, over the course of our last two episodes, we discussed with Dr. Beverly Shepard how COVID is impacting New York City, and with Katrina Peters, how COVID is impacting California. Today, we will round out and close out our COVID medical discussion with Dr. Janice Herbert Carter, who teaches at Morehouse Medical College in Atlanta, Georgia.
1: And she's a seven-time, Michelle, Teacher of the Year recipient. Janice graduated from Princeton University in 1977, majoring in biochemistry, science and human affairs and Afro-American studies. I couldn't even do one major, she did three. She earned her medical degree from Howard University and her master's in general administration from the University of Maryland. She has published dozens of articles in various medical journals and is a fellow of the American College of Physicians, a member of the American Medical Association, National Medical Association, the Atlanta Medical Association, the Teen-Based Learning Collaborative, the Gold Humanism in Medicine Honor Society, and the Alpha Omega Medical Honor Society. Janice writes and lectures extensively on the impact of diabetes, in particular, and other chronic health conditions in the Black community. Janice, it's a pleasure.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So um, Janice, after graduating from Princeton, what inspired you uh, to first earn your medical degree from a historically black college like Howard University uh, of Medicine and then from there become uh, a medical uh, part of the medical faculty at Morehouse College because you know you went to an Ivy League school for four years and and you know you were exposed to that uh, background and culture and environment and what have you and then you went straight to HBCUs after that. And then, and so I, I'd, like to, I'd like to find out more about those kind of choices that you made.
2: Yeah, um, when I chose Howard for med school, when I went for my interview, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> I had never seen so many black folks accomplishing stuff. The professor who interviewed me on interview day was the chairman of biochemistry and it was a brother. And I was in the biochem department at Princeton and I always felt like an outsider. There were only two people, me and one other sister in my year and there were two people in the year ahead of me who were black. And professors either acted like we did not exist, they would not help us if you wanted to ask a question. We were made to feel unwelcome when we were in the lab And I could go on and on, but I was clearly, you don't belong here. And I had never seen a black biochemist. And then I go to Howard for my interview and the chairman of the department is black. It was was just overwhelming. And so I said, I gotta go here. And I'll throw this in. When I was interviewing, people were studying for exams and they were sitting around studying Robbins, which is the classic pathology textbook. And they were sitting there with their microscopes. Nobody uses microscopes anymore. But they were sitting there with their microscopes. And they would say, I see an infiltrate of white blood cells, blah, 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 blah. Oh, five no Trump. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I've got to come here. <laughs> and. I, most people cannot say this because med school, let's face it, is hard. But my four years at Howard College of Medicine were the best four years of my life. Then I did National Health Service Corps, did other things. And then I came back to Howard to teach for a year. And then I ended up at Morehouse School of Medicine. I have to be careful. We are Morehouse School of Medicine. We're not part of Morehouse College. Morehouse College started us, but we're a completely separate institution now. And I was offered a position as was my husband, we're both internists and they were expanding. Morehouse School of Medicine was established in 1975 and they admitted their first class in 1978. And so they were in an expansion period when I got there. And so they were hiring folks so that we could have an internal medicine service at Grady Hospital. That's our public hospital in Atlanta. And so that we could have more residency programs. And so I felt like I could really make a contribution. And now on September 30th, September 15th, I celebrated 30 years at Morehouse School of Medicine. And that's fantastic. fantastic, congratulations. That and, is, expand. And, yeah. and
1: by the, by the way, uh, I beat your five no, I'm gonna bid six low, okay? <laughs>
0: An so, old people's uh, bid wish joke.
2: <laughs> yeah, there you go. Cause you know, nowadays the kids only play spades. They only play spades, right? Yeah. Right. Boring. Yes,
0: so, really.
1: So Janice, your time your tenure at uh, Morehouse School of Medicine, how has it been to basically be teaching the next generation of black and, and, and brown uh, physicians?
2: Fantastic. When I was in practice, in the National Health Service Corps. I was in a Community Health Center. And I was doing good stuff, taking care of the underserved. Okay, people with no insurance or not enough insurance. And it was great. But it wasn't fulfilling. Yeah, I could treat Mr. Smith's hypertension and prevent him from having a stroke and I could treat Mrs. Jones's diabetes and prevent her from going blind or having kidney failure or amputations, and that was nice. But there were a thousand Mr. Jones's and Mrs. Smith's behind them that I could not impact. When I got into education, I can feel like I can see that I have an impact on every single patient taken care of by every single student I've ever taught. So it's like a geometric progression. I'm having more of an impact as an educator than I could ever have treating patients one by one. And I don't even practice anymore. I, my passion is education. And so it's great. And being particularly at an HBCU, I feel it's even more of an impact because We've shown, I mean, it's documented, Black patients do better with Black physicians. And we don't have enough Black physicians in this country. And so numerical wise, Black people make up mm, about 13% of the population of the country, but only about four, maybe 5% of the physicians. So it's not possible right now for every black person to have a black physician and that shouldn't even be necessary. You should be able to get good care, whoever you go to And not everybody at Morehouse School of Medicine, not all of our student body is black. But we have a saying that I actually coined called primarily caring. So we're known as a school for primary care. But our students go out and don't only practice primary care. Primary care means general internal medicine, general pediatrics, uh, family medicine, some people include OBGYN. Um, But you don't have to go into those primary care fields, but whatever field you go into, you must be primarily caring. And that is our whole theme at Morehouse School of Medicine. Our vision statement is leading the creation and advancement of health equity. And health equity is not the same as equality. Equality means, and not just in health, in general. Equality means everybody gets treated exactly the same. Everybody gets the same thing. But equity means everybody gets what they need in the amount that they need when they need it. So you might need a cardiac bypass that costs thousands of dollars. I might not need that. I might just need basic immunizations, but I get what I need. You get what you need. It's not, it doesn't have to be equal, but it's equity. And so our vision is leading the creation and advancement of health equity. And we do that, by, we consider ourselves training the next generation of health learners and leaders, so that they can go out and carry out that mission. If I can jump in here,
0: since we're talking about the academic piece of it, Mm -hmm. as an academic myself, I was uh, particularly interested in the different lectures that you've given. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that you at one time gave a lecture on uh, cultural competency for the medical profession. And this this was particularly interesting for me because I've also written on the issue of cultural competency for lawyers. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what your talk was about and why cultural competency is so important in the medical profession.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, some people use the term cultural competency. Some people use the term cultural humility. I like the term appreciation for cultural diversity. And because, it's impossible to really be competent in somebody else's culture. And I don't like humility because the position that black people have been in all these years, we don't need more humility. Other folks need a little bit more humility. Um, But everybody needs appreciation for cultural diversity. And it's critical in medicine If I could recommend a book, it would be Just Medicine by Dana, D-A-Y-N-A, Bowen Matthew. Not Matthews, Matthew. And it's about implicit bias in medicine. Most physicians are not overtly racist, but there's that implicit bias where because of systemic racism in this country, everybody has that. And that's one of the reasons why, as I mentioned before, black people do better when their physician is also black because there's a level of trust there that you don't otherwise get. So cultural competence or whatever you wanna call it is important because if you are not race concordant with your patient, you still need to understand where they're coming from. You need to speak their language and I don't mean Ebonics. I mean you have to understand what they say. I'll give an example. I had a resident because I, I teach residents. I had a resident and he didn't, he was from another country and he didn't understand he wanted to work the lady up for arthritis because she told him I feel weak in the knees he took that as my knees are weak, but the lady meant, I'm feeling woozy. I feel like I'm gonna fall out. He didn't understand that. He spoke perfect English, no mm-hmm. accent, but that wasn't within his cultural realm. So now now you also need to be able to actually speak people's language in terms of cultural diversity. Um, if you have a mostly Latino population, and you don't speak Spanish. You need somebody there who does. So you have to understand people's culture. You have to um, accept it in a non judgmental way. We run into patients who cannot be treated by their doctor adequately because their doctor does not understand their religion and things that are prohibited in their religion but we'll just do it. No, you have to understand when you're trying to explain, I, I, one of the talks I did about cultural competence, you know, when you're explaining a diabetic diet and you're saying, here, you should eat fruit and this apple is, is good. And the patient might be from the Caribbean, they might be Latino and they go, well, I don't really like apples. Um, what about a guanabana? And you're like, oh what? So if you don't know what your patient is talking about, how can you explain what's a good diet to them? And if you're in Jamaica, that's a sour soursop. If you're in a Spanish speaking country, it's a guanabana, okay? If you're in uh, Brazil, it's maracujá. So you need to understand what your patients eat you need to understand some of their cultural religious practices so that you can relate your advice to them to their life situation that's so important and you have to establish a rapport with the patient they have to trust you if they're not trusting of you they're not going to trust and follow your advice and then too often, oh, that patient is non-compliant. Mm. You don't understand why they're non-compliant.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And there's too long a history in this country of medical mistreatment, which is going on right now. I don't know if you've heard in the news, but this has probably hit the national news, but it took place in Georgia in one of the ICE yes. uh, detainee centers. Yes, They yes. were doing unwanted, un called for unwarranted hysterectomies mm-hmm. and other forms of sterilization on immigrant women.
1: Yes. The, the whistleblower was a Black woman by the name of yes. Dawn, Dawn Wooten.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so no wonder people don't trust the medical establishment and especially not people who don't look like them. Right. So that's fascinating because we have exactly
0: that same problem in the law. Right. And it'd be okay. interesting one day to have a, a, a workshop or a conference where all the professionals got together and talked about how their field needed cultural competency training and why. That and but I, I
1: recommend she's a lawyer.
2: <laughs> and so uh, Dana Bone Matthew is a lawyer, and but she wrote about medicine. Her husband is a physician. Okay. And so she's looking at legal ways to address. The implicit bias in medicine. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. See, see, we're we're just uh, it's just so much fascinating information. But let us uh, bring you back around to the COVID discussion because you also um, speak and write on the issue of diabetes, and we know that uh, in our communities, um, just the nature of our communities and our health issues make us have. Uh, I think Beverly calls it COVID more more more. What's the name of it, Morbidity of mortality? Morbidity, there you go. COVID yeah. morbidity <laughs> when we have other complicating health factors. So how, how is diabetes and those kinds of uh, high blood pressure and those kinds of complicating health uh, problems that we have in the Black community, how is that being
2: complicated by the COVID situation? Even without COVID, <laughs> diabetes is the devil, okay? Yeah. It, it's like one of our worst enemies. But then you put COVID in there, and they have worse outcomes. One of the problems and why COVID has been so bad in the Black community, and let me just give you a couple of numbers so you do know how bad it's been. 80% of the hospitalizations for COVID are in Black folks. And Black folks are three and a half times more likely to die of COVID than white folks. Now, part of this is because of the prevalence of diabetes in the Black community. So, when we talk about diabetes, there's different types of diabetes, but the most common type is type 2, which is what you mostly see in adults. If you look at the numbers of diabetic patients over the age of 20, 7% of white people have diabetes. Okay, it's almost twice that, it's about 13% in black folks, Mm. and in Latino folks. I wrote down some numbers. In Latino folks, it's about 12%. And in Native Americans, which the Native American community has been harder hit by COVID than any other ethnic group. In the Native American community, 33% of adults have diabetes. That's one in three. Mm. So diabetes people think of as just, oh, my blood sugar's high. It's way more than that. Diabetes affects the whole body. And in particular, diabetes affects what we call the endothelium, the lining of your blood vessels. COVID affects the endothelium, the lining of your blood vessels. So it's like a double whammy. You already have unhappy, so to speak, blood vessels from diabetes. And it may be that they have atherosclerosis. It may be that they have inflammation, You know, atherosclerosis, hardening the arteries inflammation, and then you put COVID into the mix. And a lot of people who die of COVID, people think about lung disease, but a lot of people who die of COVID actually die of cardiac arrest. You know, like what you see on TV, code blue, code blue, and they're pumping on the chest. Heart disease is often what kills you in COVID. And diabetic patients are way more likely to have heart disease already Diabetes is one of the biggest risk factors for cardiovascular disease, heart attacks. and Why is
0: that? Why is that?
2: Because they get early and severe atherosclerosis, Mm. which is hardening the arteries. Your coronary arteries, which supply blood to the heart, get narrow. And so it can't get the blood flow to the heart muscle, which means the heart muscle can't get the oxygen it needs. Mm. Same thing going on in the brain. And so when it happens in the brain, and that artery gets clogged, you can't get blood flow to the brain. Boom, you have a stroke. Mm. If it happens in the heart, that's going to be a heart attack. And diabetes accelerates that process.
1: Janice, what about uh, there's a high prevalence also? Beverly uh, mentioned it, and when she was on the show, of asthma in our communities. How does COVID affect the respiratory system? And if you have any kind of respiratory ailment, how is that that impacted?
2: Anything that has already compromised your lung function, COVID is going to make it worse. So asthma is one. COPD, which is chronic bronchitis and emphysema, is another. And Black people are more prone to another kind of uh, lung disease called sarcoidosis, way less common than asthma, but it's way more common in black folks than in other races. and But one of the big ones right now is asthma. And there's a lot of contributors to that, but environmental triggers are big in asthma. And so if you live in an urban area where there might be air pollution, and Atlanta is famous for its traffic and Traffic from air pollution is especially bad in the summer. You get the hot and the inversions and all of that weather stuff. And so they issue, you know, this is an orange alert day. This is a red alert day. And so people's asthma flares up due to air pollution. People's asthma also flares up when you live in a situation where there may be mold in your home or when there may be dust mites In your home and this is not to say your home you're not keeping it clean this is in the walls this is in the ceilings this is you live in substandard housing where there's been a leak and so mold grows okay so disproportionately black people are exposed to those environmental triggers and so asthma is one of the worst things in black folks um i wrote down some numbers uh In the white population, asthma is about 7%. In the black population, it's 11%. And um, it just, it's just worse. Put COVID on top of that, you already have a compromised lung situation. It's gonna make the situation worse.
0: People just really have no idea how serious this all is. And I wonder though, um, I didn't mention it to you all ahead of time, but when all the CDC is uh, making all these policies and recommendations on how people should respond um, in the COVID situation, do we have any idea of whether they've considered that Black and Latinx people are specifically have a higher level of susceptibility and Native Americans too, um, to these COVID factors and are these uh, safety issues and protocols that the CDC is releasing, adequate to address the rate of uh, susceptibility that our people, communities of color are experiencing.
2: Anybody have any thoughts, you have any thoughts on that, Janet? Well, the things that they're recommending are good for everybody, okay? At Morehouse School of Medicine, we talk about the three Ws. Wear a mask, wash your hands, watch your distance. That has nothing to do with race. That's good advice for everybody. Part of the problem though that we've had is the politicization of the CDC. If you let the scientists and the public health professionals do their job and put out the recommendations that they know are true, we'd all be better off. And that has nothing to do with black or white. Um, I believe Ray mentioned earlier that we haven't had the, the, the guidance that we need coming out. And part of that is because politics has gotten involved, but we need to believe science. We need to listen to the scientists, the physicians. Uh, Dr. Fauci is, he's not at CDC, he's at NIH, National Institutes of Health. Um, We need to listen to the science. Science, those things, That doesn't matter. The virus doesn't care if you're Black or white or Latina or whatever. Those recommendations are good for everybody.
1: So Janice, what's it like teaching uh, when you go uh, to the college with coronavirus, with this hanging over everything that people are doing? I mean, your students are showing up with masks on and they're walking around campus, you know. uh, hopefully socially.
2: That's some colleges. Morehouse School of Medicine right now is is virtual. So after spring break, spring break was in March. Mm -hmm. After spring break, we went completely virtual for the whole rest of the semester. When we came back, we're now mostly virtual. The only in-person things are things right now that just cannot be done. You cannot teach somebody to do a physical exam on a person virtually. They can watch a video, but they have to touch people. They have to put their stethoscope on people's chest.
1: So So you mean, so you mean that exam that the president got on Fox News is that's not good?
2: (laughs) If you put good in any sentence with the word the president, that's an oxymoron right there. (laughs) I got you. But, um, yeah, so we're, my class doesn't start until this month. We start next week. Most, most of our classes started back in July and August. And things that used to be in person, like for example, one of the rites of passage of medical school is dissecting the cadaver. And they couldn't do that because they couldn't have all those people crowded up in the lab and have five people standing around a cadaver. So that had to be done virtually by demonstration, by a faculty member and you know, the cameras on them. Um, and physical diagnosis has to be taught in person, but we're limiting the number of people that can be in any room. Every room now has on the door, how many people can be in it. Um, where my class is is zoom. I've had to learn so much. Our exams are remote. I had to learn about that. Um, I had to reconfigure my course, some of the things in my course that were good educationally. I can't do like, for example, when I teach about heart failure at the end of the class, we have a little skit that we do and it really helps reinforce in the students, the compensation mechanisms for heart failure. I can't do that because they're not going to be in the class to act out the skit. Um, so I'm having to do things differently, but we'll we'll make do. We'll get by. Now, the students who are in the clinical years, they're still. We pulled them out of the clinics at first because there was not enough PPE. There were not enough masks, et cetera. But they've been back since June. We have enough PPE, at least for now. And so the clinical year students, yes, they are in Grady Hospital, in the VA hospital, you know. Um, in clinics. A lot of our clinics have gone to telemedicine. Um, So the students had to learn how to do that. We are now back in clinic some in addition to telemedicine. But the third and fourth year students, yes, are seeing patients. But the first and second year students, it's virtual. So I noticed you made the distinction between the medical
0: school and a regular college or university. Do you have some comment on um, how the colleges are approaching uh, returning to school? I saw an article where Duke uh, was like, no, we're not having coronavirus here. And they uh, instituted very uh, strict measures to make sure that it didn't spread on their campus. Whereas uh, UNC as we know, has hundreds of cases of coronavirus on campus. So from a, from a doctor's perspective, what do you think about
2: how some of these uh, universities are reopening? Uh, Morehouse School of Medicine is part of the AU Center, Atlanta University Center. It's Morehouse College, Spelman College, Clark Atlanta University, um, inter- Interdenominational Theological Center and Morehouse School of Medicine. The whole AU Center made the decision to be virtual the university system of Georgia under the leadership of our governor who follows our president (laughs) decided to be in person. And in general, right now, cases are tending down in Atlanta, but in some of the college towns, particularly Athens, where university of Georgia is. And I believe where Georgia Southern is, and there's one more school huge huge outbreaks now because of irresponsible behavior. These are kids. They're young kids. They want to party. I get that, but it's not safe. Right. And at University of Georgia, they were actually telling people wear masks for everything, including hate to be too graphic, but they were telling people they actually put out when you have sex, wear a mask for students. So they know what students are doing. Practicing social distancing, you just yeah. see crowds of students hanging out. No masks. I understand missing the college experience and, you know, the dorm experience and the parties. I, I get that. But it's not safe. It's really not safe. I know Howard University is virtual, um, a lot of schools, like you mentioned, Duke is virtual, UNC is not. Um, It's just not safe. And And, you know, it's also a question of money that I
0: find. So, yeah. At our institution, a lot of the definitions have been changed so that, for example, contract tracing doesn't have to be performed if you're teaching in the classroom. Because they erected a plexiglass shield between you and the students so technically you're not within the six foot zone where the CDC says you would be exposed and and, of course, because of hipaa or we're not allowed to know yeah which of our students become ill. So, you know, really a lot of the, the
2: faculty just feel it's a crapshoot. Um, yeah. uh, yeah. At Morehouse School of Medicine, we've instituted frequent testing for everybody. I just got tested last Tuesday. Uh, frequent, And I'm negative still, I'm trying to keep Dang. it that way. Yeah, congrats. Um, frequent testing for everybody. Social distancing, we're, we went on a blue-green schedule. So if you were blue, you were only allowed on campus Monday and Wednesday, and if you were green, Tuesday and Thursday, and then we alternated Fridays. Because our infectivity rate has been below that 3% level that CDC says is okay, um, we're gonna be going back to more frequently being allowed on campus if you have a private office. Mm -hmm. But if you're in one of those group offices, you know, no, you're still gonna be, so that they can social distance. Um, no more than two people in an elevator, you know, no more than one person, you know, the bathroom may be set up for four people, but no more than one person can be in the bathroom at one time. Um, so we're trying to keep safe because some of the things that people do at a medical school, we have scientists who work in labs. They have to be on campus. You know, I can teach my class by Zoom. But if you're doing an experiment in a lab and we have people doing COVID research, we have Mm -hmm. virologists, we have people working on vaccines, you have to be in your lab. So we're trying to open up as safely as possible. The difference between when you
0: believe in science and when you don't. (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, thank you, Janice so much. We've uh, come to the end of our time. That was just absolutely fabulous. And let's see if uh, for our next episode, we're gonna bring all three of you back together and have a round table discussion about what you you heard from each other. And maybe Ray and I will pepper it with a few more questions uh, just to get the juices going. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it's been my pleasure.
1: So on behalf of Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk podcast, we'd like to thank Dr. Janice Herbert Carter, class of 1977 Princeton University and professor of medical education and family medicine at Morehouse School of Medicine for her contributions to our episode. Make sure to join us for our final COVID-19 special when all three of our guests, Dr. Beverly Shepard, class of 75, Dr. Katrina Peters, also class of 75, Dr. Janice Herbert Carter, class of 77, and they all return to join us for a roundtable discussion regarding the impact of the coronavirus on Black and brown communities, as well as the importance of the pandemic on this upcoming election.
0: If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, newbieandtigerspodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information follow us on twitter our handle is at nubian tigers written as one word we are on youtube on the nubian tigers podcast channel and do you have a favorite podcast service well we're probably on it you can subscribe to our podcast on anchor fm spotify google Podcasts, Pocket pocketcast radio public stitcher and breaker just look for nubian tigers talk looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time